Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. 2022 is a big year for politics across the nation. The upcoming midterms could end Democratic control of Congress and usher in a new wave of Republican politicians. And in Connecticut, 2022 looks to be just as meaningful. This is Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. Every member of the state's General Assembly is up for re-election this fall, and that's put even more emphasis on the upcoming legislative session that starts this week. Lawmakers are hoping that legislative wins in Hartford will translate to votes in November. Today, we're joined by a panel to preview the session and talk through some of the most important state races this fall. Christine Stewart is editor and owner of CT News Junkie and reporter for NBC Connecticut. Ebong Udoma is a senior reporter covering state politics for WSHU. And Dr. Jonathan Wharton is associate professor of political science and urban affairs at Southern Connecticut State University. Christine, Ebong, Jonathan, welcome to Disrupted. Thank you for having us. Thanks for having us. It's great that you're all here because you represent such different areas of expertise in state politics and how it connects to the national level. So let's talk about an issue that seems to be the albatross that won't leave us, and that is COVID-19. And even in a state like Connecticut that has exceptionally high vaccination rates compared to some other places, we've seen some declining rates of hospitalizations related to covid We also know that with the recent surge, many people are concerned. And now the governor has announced that Connecticut is no longer going to mandate that state employees get vaccinated or submit to weekly testing. So I ask you, is that the right decision for the state at this time? There's a lot of pushback on on vaccine mandates and all the other mandates that go with COVID. And people seem to be getting tired of it. And this is also, this is an election year. So it's it's going to be an issue uh, in the upcoming elections, no matter what happens. And the governor is trying to walk a fine line here because his powers actually expire uh, on the 15th of this month. And so it's something he's asked to have about 11 of his um, executive orders, uh, emergency COVID orders continued, including one that might deal with uh, having um, masks in schools. But uh, he's, um, he's trying to, well, the legislature wants to get involved. The, the the Republicans have been pushing this, that uh, that they do not want the governor's powers to be extended. So that's going to be that's going to be the first issue that they'll have to deal with when uh, the session um, reconvenes, uh, when they reconvene for the next session next week. And, and let's be clear, the governor isn't necessarily asking for his powers to be 
extended. At this point, I think we have both a societal issue and a public policy issue. You know, how do we wind down this pandemic? What does it look like? And the governor has had, um, you know, the power to make these decisions for the past 23 months. Uh, and the legislature knows that it needs to step up and it needs to make these decisions. But how it does that is really going to be difficult. So do they take these 11 executive orders and vote on them all as one big piece of legislation? Or do they pick some of these out and, and debate them, um, you know, such as the school mask mandate? Republicans want to see public hearings. They want this to be like the legislative process where the public comes in, they get to weigh in on something. Um, but there isn't necessarily that time. I mean, the legislature convenes on February 9th. His powers expire on February 15th. We have President's Day in between that. Um, you know, there is a lot of moving parts. And obviously, the legislature doesn't necessarily um, want to be um, you know, left holding the, the bag. Um, so they really do need to make um, some decisions. And of course, the governor doesn't want to be called King Ned anymore. Jonathan, let me bring you in because you are a key proponent for having people be interested in local government and local affairs. And you have made the argument over the years that people really need to pay attention to what's happening at the local level. And the governor is now saying that when it comes to these mask mandates, particularly in schools, that he's considering deferring that decision-making to local authorities, whether it's local school boards or local city councils to do that. How does that play out in this broader context of what Ebong and Christine are saying that it's not just an executive decision, the legislature is considering when and how to weigh in, and now it may be pushing this question and this challenge to local levels? Well, I agree with Ebong in light of the fact that it is an election year. And so this is going to be tested uh, in a sense of how far the governor uh, will allow for home rule to be that constant reminder in Connecticut that when a decision like this is made, it should be, uh, you know, the ability for the local government to carry out some kind of local authority, even when it comes to public health issues like this one. So it's interesting to see the transition to power in light of this. And it's a good reminder to nutmeggers everywhere that we do have this addiction to home rule and making decisions like this. So I'm fascinated by it because we tend to forget we have 169 municipalities. <laughs> they can all do it differently. And even in an instance like this one, this could be a great reminder of it. Um, and so we could see a response, almost a checkerboard response to seeing one town doing it different than the other. And we already see that anyway, right? I mean, obviously just this week, we saw Hartford where they decided they're not gonna renew their, their mask mandate, but the New Haven is still doing it for the mask mandate. And they will probably continue to do it because I think it's no secret, Justin Elliker is a big proponent of this. Other towns are saying, well, leave it up to the businesses to decide this as opposed to towns to do it. And then you see the whole thing, what happens in Hamden. They're back and forth, you know. <laughs> they keep on renewing it, then they don't renew it. I, I, I get confused when I show up to the Hamden bars. You know, did they change it this, this month or not? So this is going to be interesting, just in terms of a local governance uh, consideration in light of everything. But, but I think what's going to happen, it's also going to depend on how fast the COVID recedes. Um, and that's pretty, pretty much going to be what will determine this in the long run. 
But one of the areas where we're not seeing COVID recede is within correctional facilities across the state. And it's an interesting dynamic there because we talk about this issue of representation, especially when it comes to public health, who's most vulnerable, who has been most affected by this virus, but also who has the voice to say what's happening here isn't okay. We need to do something. And so I want to give you the statistic because I think it points to, you know, when this will be over versus for whom it will be over. As of February 3rd, the Department of Correction has said that nearly 400 inmates and staff members, and I think that's important, we're not just talking about incarcerated people, we're also talking talking about workers who are in these facilities, at least 400 are currently recovering from COVID. And our state prisons have now made national news in an election year where both Senators Blumenthal and Murphy have told the media that they were denied access to certain parts of our prisons. But it does set in tone this idea of if this is happening in federal facilities, What's happening at the state level and what should the approach be to keeping people safe? Because inmates may stay in a correctional facility, but it means that the employees are coming home, coming to communities. It raises questions. What's happening when it comes to state prisons in Connecticut? There was actually one point, uh, I want to say it was in January, where there were 600 correction officers who were out with COVID. Um, And what that means for uh, people who have loved ones in prison, that means that they are staying in their cell for 22, 23 hours a day. They're maybe getting out for like a 10 minute, 15 minute shower. Um, But then it's also creating mental health problems for them because they don't have a choice. They don't, they don't have um, this option. And so they were thinking about calling up some retired correction officers to get back into, um, into the, the state prisons, but it, that never happened. And I think you'll see in regards to the COVID statistics that the correction officers are the least vaccinated um, population of all state employees. And now the governor has said that he's not going to renew his call to make sure that state employees are vaccinated. Um, you know, so it's a good question. I mean, what does that mean for our incarcerated population? Um, it means more time in their cell, less time being able to make phone calls, less time being able to shower and um, without the services for the mental health care that they need. I, I think uh, the powerful uh, prison um, unions uh, are responsible, prison guard unions, and uh, they have not given, uh, they, have, they have pushed back on any type of mandate. And, and there se- also seems to be uh, a high level of resistance uh, for vaccination amongst the uh, 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 prison staff. I, I believe about 66% of, of the staff in prisons have been uh, fully vaccinated at this time. Uh, well, earlier on this this year, so it's a, it's a tough it's a tough situation to deal with. Jonathan, we see that in terms of that hesitance or resistance to vaccination, we see that with correctional officers, we see that with public safety officers across every level. And a lot of cities and localities are trying to decide. We have this tremendous need, and yet we see this hesitancy to get vaccinated, and we're talking about multiple vulnerable populations at once. 
you know, Ebon talked about the, the power of the correctional unions to advocate on behalf of their employees and their members. Who's raising this issue for incarcerated people in Connecticut, but also the families to which they are attached so that visits in many places have been suspended? That has all kinds of implications, for example, for children who are connected to an incarcerated parent. Where is that advocacy coming? And do you think it will make a difference in this current context? Well, beyond the families, also the media. We can't ignore that the media has been spending a lot of attention on this, too. And so there's concern coming across the board from so many different sectors. It's almost difficult to keep track of you know, who's making this issue really well known. And so it is kind of intriguing because this is just new territory. And one thing we can't ignore, everybody, is the fact that the Supreme Court renders this decision when it comes to you know, vaccination as well. Uh, in the workplace. So, you know, as I said from the beginning, when it comes to COVID, uh, and I emphasize this in my public policy classes, a lot of this is uncharted territory. We're dealing with public health issues, and it has its implications. And most of this at the federal and even state level is a brand new, you know, uh, era right now in terms of understanding how to go about this. And so there's not going to be a perfect resolution to addressing a, a public safety crisis or health public health uh, moment like this one right now. And so it's going to be difficult to see what will be the result of all this right now. One of the other areas that has increased concern is the level of accessibility for citizens and residents of the state to their government, and in particular, their state government, who will be making key decisions connected to all of these areas that we've already talked about. And Christine, your team has reported that in this upcoming legislative session, it will likely be a combination, a sort of hybrid approach of in-person as well as remote. Given that the state capitol has been closed to the public for so long, and with all of the issues we've already talked about that will be on the legislative agenda, what should we be expecting in this session? How accessible and transparent will these key decision-making processes be to the Connecticut public? I think it hasn't been clear at how how not transparent we have been uh, over the past two years. I think that people who deal with government on a regular basis see it. Um, and you haven't been able to have that conversation with that lawmaker. You haven't been able to see that facial expression. You haven't been able to, you know, hear a mother's pain when she's testifying about something that, you know, may have happened to her child. Um, and also the lawmakers haven't been able to have these conversations with each other because when you have public hearings that are remote, the lawmakers are all over the state in, you know, in their houses um, doing these public hearings, but they're not also together. So there's no there's no collective um, sense of of trying to convince somebody to do something uh, for the good of public policy. So it's really hard for them um, as colleagues to be able to work towards a common good or get a public policy passed. So it makes it even harder for them. I think the loss of human connection um, is also a, a loss of transparency and you know, to the detriment of everybody. Um, so I don't know what happens. I mean, in July, so the state uh, capitol and the legislative office building, only the first floor has been accessible uh, to the public, uh, nothing beyond that. Um, but it's not like lawmakers are there. 
Um, they're not, um, they're, they're not actually at the Capitol. They're at their home. And if you don't have their cell phone number, um, you're not able to get a hold of them. Uh, so it's been a really difficult few years. And I think that we are not better off for this lack of transparency, um, which is perpetuated by the lack of being able to be in person. But you know something, um, actually more people have taken part in, uh, in some of the public hearings that had been remote, uh, that had been virtual, than when they had to actually get to the Capitol from, for, uh, and be there for all day for, for some of the contentious issues. <laughs> um, they've, been able to, they've been able to stay at home and participate. But is anybody so, paying attention? You know what I'm saying? Like, can I guarantee that all the lawmakers on that committee are paying attention to that person when they're testifying on Zoom? Uh, but the Zoom, the Zoom testimony has gone on longer than some of uh, uh, the, the, the live ones. However, I think a, a hybrid is probably going to be the future of public hearings um, to get more people to participate, to be able to participate without having to get to Hartford. And at the same time, uh, um, um, oh, uh, because I think they've been able to open up, up to more people. Uh, when it's been virtual. And so I have a feeling, I, I don't know, I could be totally wrong, but I have a feeling that going forward, um, uh, virtual part participation in public hearings is going to be, we're going to have more of that. And actually, we are seeing this at the town level, at the local level. Um, I think a lot of you might remember I did that through an article with my colleague, Jody Gill, on virtual town hall meetings and what does that entail? And so in our study, when we looked at some of the uh, cities and towns around Connecticut as examples, actually, if I'm going to make your point, a lot of people wanted that, even the officials. The only quirk, and I get Christine's frustration, especially in the media, being directly on the front lines for this is, uh, you know, it's almost bizarre how, you know, we have to update, you know, a lot of this on the, you know, legislative side for the state. Because, for example, I think you all might remember this whole business of voting. <laughs> <laughs> Some of these things, right? You had to have your camera on. You had to, right? So you're not, you know, as a lawmaker, you have to be engaged in order to do that participation online. So I've been kind of mesmerized by how we're all learning through this virtual existence and seeing what we can see the pitfalls are. But I will tell you, I have been very concerned about this virtual business and what it all entails in our state capital, quite frankly. Well, remember the controversy over the driving while legislating. So, you know, the, the lawmakers <laughs> who were distracted driving and exactly. voting while, while also driving in the car. It's, uh, it's a whole new world. I don't know if we're going to see any of that. I think the goal is to try to have the committee meetings where they're actually voting on the legislation, at least have those be in person. Well, the leadership has said that by March, they'll reconsider. And when they start taking action in committee, they'll have, they'll have them physically in one place. But we'll see how that develops. When we return, more from CT News Junkies' Christine Stewart, WSHU's Ebong Udoma, and political scientist Jonathan Wharton. After we taped this conversation, Governor Lamont announced his new recommendation to end the statewide school mask mandate on February 28th. It leaves the decision on mask requirements up to individual school districts. Coming up, we'll dive into some of the Assembly's biggest priorities this year and how Senator Blumenthal's re-election campaign could face stiff Republican competition. This is Disrupted. Stay with us.
Welcome back to Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. This hour, we're speaking with a panel of political insiders on Connecticut state politics. We're joined by editor and owner of CT News Junkie, Christine Stewart, senior political reporter for WSHU, Ebong Udoma, and associate professor of political science at Southern Connecticut State University, Dr. Jonathan Wharton. This week marks the start of a new legislative session in our state capitol and Democratic and Republican leaders have different priorities for the spring. But both parties have signaled an interest in expanding mental health services. After nearly two years of isolation and stress from the pandemic, lawmakers see mental health care as critical to getting our state back to normal. I asked Christine how this proposed legislation could help address the crisis. I think that they are going to obviously try to address the problem, but it's not it's not as simple as that. It's not as simple as as changing public policy and requiring an insurance company to cover more of a mental health visit than they they have in the past, because we simply don't. I think we saw it at the Connecticut Children's Medical Center. The ER is overflowing with children with mental health problems, suicidal ideation, and there are not enough professionals in the state to be able to treat them. Um, as somebody who, you know, has a child and, you know, sought mental health treatment for, for my child, it's even harder for parents with private insurance than it is for parents on, um, on Husky um, to be able to access those services. And, you know, for the most part, you are, you are paying out of pocket, but, you know, at that point, you know, money isn't necessarily the barrier. It's being able to find the professional who is qualified to be able to treat your child. And, and this was really important for me was to be able to have that treatment be in person. I, I did not feel that it was appropriate to have the treatment um, via Zoom. I mean, you might be able to, you know, pack a little bit more more in there and be able to see more people during the day, but it's been, it has been a struggle. So I think that they're going to, you know, they can throw a lot of money at this problem. They do have a lot of federal funds they can use, but if the professionals aren't there to service the population, it's there's no solution to that. And, uh, but, but, you know, one of the big drawbacks in, in mental health care has been funding for mental health care. So if they can try and do something about that, that will start to try to deal with the problem. But this is a problem we've been dealing with for years. Um, it, it was a big issue after Newtown. Uh, we were supposed to uh, make it, so much easier for people to access healthcare, I mean, mental health care. And here we are so many years later, and we're talking about the same things and an and, and even bigger crisis. Well, and, you know, to put some numbers on it, there are 600 vacancies at the Department of Mental Health and Addiction Services. There are a hundred, I think it was like 152 beds at Connecticut Valley Hospital um, addiction beds for um, for those who are on Medicaid. And only 18 of those beds are currently full because there aren't enough staff 
Um, and it's not that the job um, listings aren't out there. It's not that they haven't been advertising for the jobs, but they haven't been able to fill those jobs. And I don't know what extra incentive you can get to make sure that people are qualified to become, you know, um, licensed in that field. Well, Kyle, I think you know very well, especially as an educator, you know, at, at university, it has been a challenge even for a lot of our own students and advisees. Um, because it's a matter of do they recognize that they're going through maybe some kind of anxiety or heightened even more so, and even depression in light of everything right now. Um, this whole distance thing, whether it's online classes or even online meetings or even meeting with, uh, uh, you know, your advisor, it's, it's very, you know, different for a lot of students, right? It's been interesting reactions as to whether even the online uh, healthcare that people are seeking, especially when it comes to uh, mental health, is helpful. Some of my students actually appreciate it. Uh, because some of them are actually introverted. So they feel more comfortable being at home and doing this online. Others don't. They miss that actual connection and that bond, and you can't blame them. I think it's just a matter of, you know, what can work for so many people, and, and can we find a way of having our health care, uh, you know, adjust to these, uh, you know, on, ongoing um, issue. I can't help but think about the economic angle to this so that it's not just about throwing money at a problem, but if in fact there are all these vacancies and so much need in our state, why not take this on as a workforce development question of what are the partnerships that we could see between the state, colleges and universities, you know, other sort of programs across the state to build that workforce? Because the sad reality is this need is not going away. In many ways, it is only being magnified and intensified. And if we don't have the resources, meaning the people, to be in positions to help this, then it rings hollow to tell people just call when you need help or just ask for help when the request is not answered. And all of the economic uncertainty that many people across our state are feeling, not just at the national level where inflation has is risen by 7% over the last year, but also how that economic anxiety manifests here in the state. The governor said that he wants to address affordability by cutting taxes. Do you think that's the way to address this, to address the sort of economic concerns in Connecticut and the ways that it is becoming unaffordable and unlivable for many working class people in the state? Or do you think there's a different approach that the governor could take to address the more sort of long term challenges that lead to this current reality? I think that there is a, probably a different approach. I don't know if property tax credits um, or, you know, um, getting a break on your, your car taxes is necessarily going to help with the immediate. I know that the Republicans have proposed cutting the sales tax, which impacts everybody, right? Um, so people don't think about it this way, but the state budget has actually ballooned and its surplus has grown because of inflation. Because everything costs more, they're obviously collecting more in sales tax, collecting more in gas tax. So the state budget is actually benefiting from, from you know, this increase in prices that we are all suffering from. Um, so as far as affordability is concerned, it's a huge issue. Um, you know, just, I, I was smacked in the face. I don't usually do this, um, but every once in a while I treat myself to an iced coffee. And, you know, usually the medium iced coffee is around $2.30. I went the other day 
it was $3 and 32 cents. And I was like, what? It went up an entire dollar with it. You know, it seemed like in the span of a month. Um, so people are really feeling this and, um, it is really, uh, really impacting the ability to live in Connecticut. You know, it's, it's interesting that the governor actually pushed back on, on, on cutting sales taxes. He said, because sales taxes, everyone can benefit from them, even if you're not a Connecticut resident. And this is an election year. He's thinking of what he can do for voters and having a, a reduction in property taxes is something that voters would be able to would be able to feel and it will be targeted at people who can actually make a difference in November. But, but not <laughs> everybody has property, right? I mean, there, there are people who don't have, I mean, you know, property also applies to motor vehicles, but there's people who don't have motor vehicles. I know, I know, but it was interesting to hear that. <laughs> So it's an election year, right? That is the common refrain, which we know that often will stifle the kind of action that an elected official will take. But it also means that the actions that they take are often meant as a signal to the people that one are most likely to vote and two are most likely to vote for them. And I can't help again, you know, the, the economic realities of this plays out for different people in different ways. Jonathan, this is also the year where we got the report from the Police Accountability Task Force. And so any elected official is keenly aware of any action that they take and how it will land for law enforcement officers, for their constituents who can organize with their unions, who can support a candidate or not support a candidate based on that. And so thinking about, you know, the pricing out in Connecticut, how towns are saying they're hurting when it comes to getting people in public safety because they don't feel supported. And now the governor saying, you know, here's one way of that it affects everyone, but we want to be sensitive to those who are, are disproportionately affected by this. Do you think given that reality in that context, do you expect anything substantive to come out of this legislative session related to, say, criminal justice policy or any of the kinds of things that we've been talking about since the murder of George Floyd suddenly pushed legislators to say, we need to do something? It's going to be very difficult because usually during election year, you have to be very careful touching a lot of these third rail issues. Um, and that is one of them. As a matter of fact, I spoke about this last night, in addition to maybe the police reform. Also, the chef case, <laughs> because that has to come up also before the legislature. My students were so frustrated last night for nearly a half hour. I mean, I try to get off, try to get beyond that topic. They wouldn't stop talking about it because we've been waiting since the 90s to come up with some kind of, you know, financial, uh, you know, equitable uh, response to the chef case to deal with, you know, the, the inequalities of public school education in Connecticut. Again, going back to my initial concern about home rule and how we deal with this at the local level since each town deals with it differently when it comes to school financing. As I said in class last night, state lawmakers, when they're facing generally you know, a re-election, they don't want to get marred in the middle of it. And if they're going to do it, they might as well do it at the very beginning of the session or attempt to do it or water down the bill so often as opposed to trying to do this maybe at the end of the legislative session you know, in June. So I'm going to be really paying attention to these things. But we know that they have a shortened period. We know this is going to be mostly online for now. 
And there are a lot of challenges that they're going to have to tackle in this legislative session. So I will try to follow Kyle as best as I can when it comes to some of these issues. Well, talking about Schiff, you know, what, what was so interesting is that back in 96, when the Supreme Court ruled that the state legislature had to do something about this, I, I remember talking to um, John Britton, who was one of the attorneys for Schiff at the, uh, in those days, and asking why they didn't ask for a specific remedy. Why did you leave it to the legislature to come up with something? And he said, well, if they came up with a specific remedy, it would be torn apart in the legislature. So let them come up with a remedy. Well, that's the situation we have now. (laughs) Finally, 20 years later, they have a specific remedy. Now they have to vote on it. And we'll see how that will work out. I mean, the fact that we're still trying to find a remedy to a problem that, you know, the U.S. Supreme Court first addressed in 1954, thinking about integration and what that means and how it benefits not just students and families of color, but all of us. And so those questions of racial equity are not new, but they manifest in different spaces when it comes to public policy. One of those areas that we're keeping an eye on in Connecticut is related to cannabis, And who has access to licenses, who can profit from that industry, there is a lot of money to be made and that is being made in the cannabis industry. And the reality in Connecticut, like many other states, is that those who are best situated to profit from that industry are not the same communities that were harmed by the war on drugs and the legislation. And Connecticut has said, we have this equity council, we're aware of this, we're going to address it. But there's still a concern that the people who will get those licenses and be able to open a commercial business are those who are already connected or already resourced. What do you think that council should be doing? Do you think they're doing, you know, the best they can under these conditions or should they be doing more to address this problem? I think they need to be doing more to address this problem. And so this problem, so um, let me see if I can boil this down for us. Um, There are only 56 licenses available across nine license types, 56. And only half of those 56 are available to social equity applicants. However, the equity joint venture. So if the medical marijuana facilities are able to convert to recreational facilities and enter that as an an equitable joint venture with a social equity applicant, then the number that they can open are unlimited. So basically they see that, you know, New York is going to be really slow to open. So if these medical marijuana facilities, which are already established in Connecticut, can convert to the recreational marijuana and get one of those social equity applicants as one of their partners, then they have a leg up. And what does that do to, um, you know, the social equity applicants um, who come up with a business plan on their own and want to open up a retail location or want to be a micro cultivator, um, that already puts them behind the eight ball. So already the way that the system is being set up is already not equitable. So I don't know what the social equity council can do to add any more equity to that, except by changing the number of licenses that are available. 
And, and you know, it was interesting um, watching the Social Equity Council uh, a few days ago, and they haven't even hired the people who are going to vet the applicants and the applications started, uh, they started receiving applications on Thursday. So <laughs> that shows how far behind they are uh, in trying to get this done. I, I don't see, I, I read a story in the LA Times about uh, someone in, in, in California who's very upset that uh, they had all this promise of having some social equity and they haven't been able to realize any of that. And that big business has taken over the entire industry in California. And Connecticut says, we're going to try and do it differently. We're going to be a role model for the nation. Well, we'll wait and see. <laughs> I'm not holding I'm not, I'm not my breath on that. Yeah, no, I read that same article. I think it was in the Post. It's quite an interesting read about how it got monopolized. And But I will tell you, one other state to take a look at is New Jersey. <laughs> because they're clearly having some issues, too. They've always had some issues when it came to cannabis. And I think it would be an interesting model to see what nearby New Jersey does. And, of course, it's no secret. You know, the governor is friends with Phil Murphy. They're, you know, his, you know, New Jersey's governor. And so they tend to kind of mimic one another when it comes to these policy approaches. So something I'm paying special attention to is what's going on in the Garden State when it comes to cannabis. After the break, we continue our conversation with our roundtable panelists, Christine Stewart, Ebong Udoma, and Dr. Jonathan Wharton. We'll look at what to expect in the governor's race and how a new Supreme Court nominee could shape the ballot here in Connecticut. This is Disrupted. Stay with us. Welcome back to Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. Today, we've been looking at Connecticut politics with help from a panel of experts. Our guests are Christine Stewart, editor and owner of CT News Shunky. Ebong Udoma is senior political reporter for WSHU. And Dr. Jonathan Warden is associate professor at Southern Connecticut State University. This fall, there are 36 gubernatorial seats up for grabs. And in Connecticut, Democratic Governor Ned Lamont is seeking a second term. He's had consistently high favorability ratings throughout the pandemic, but he'll face a familiar opponent this fall. Businessman Bob Stefanowski announced that he's running again. I asked Jonathan if voters will respond differently this time around and whether he expects the governor's race to be competitive. I think it will be because, you know, we can't ignore what took place again back in New Jersey with Phil Murphy. He narrowly won his re-election. And of course, Virginia, you know, your home, beloved home state there, Kyla, what happened there between both parties. So it could be very, very narrow uh, in that sense. And it wasn't even narrow. It was even narrow four years ago, quite frankly, you know, because Ned Lamont squeaked back, you know, squeaked to get elected in the first place in 2018. But as you said, he is very popular, no doubt about it. And what I've said over and over again is a lot of this is going to come down to the Republican base in the sense of, are they going to come together? Are they going to be supporting one candidate as opposed to what happened in 2018 when there were so many candidates trying to run? And will that support translate into finding some pathways of working beyond the Republican Party and working among all these unaffiliated voters? We forget in Connecticut, the majority of voters in Connecticut are unaffiliated voters. You can't just be you know, a, a candidate for one party. You need to find a way of transcending as a candidate across the board to not just the Democrats, or not just the Republicans, but among these unaffiliated voters. And that's going to be the people, the base for 
either party, you've got to find a pathway of working with these unaffiliated voters and getting their support. Otherwise, it's, it's fruitless. And so it's going to be interesting to see who these unaffiliated or even independent candidates could be for governor, let alone all the other statewide offices. I don't want to ignore the other positions like, you know, attorney general and even treasurer, among others, and comptroller, too. It's interesting that Stefanowski started off launching his campaign by saying he had $10 million he was going to spend on the campaign. And that, I think, might have kept some people who were nursing ideas of running for governor decided, you know, because, for instance, um, Themis Claridis, who was seeking I mean, uh, uh, to, to run for governor, decided that she'd better change and, and, and run for um, U.S. Senate instead. So I, I think it, it is going to end up being a, a race between Lamont and Stefanowski. It's still early and we've got quite a ways to go, but it, it's right at this moment, it's shaping up to be a rematch of what we had four years ago. And Connecticut gubernatorial races since the days of Malloy have been very close. And I don't think this is going to be any different. I mean, last time it was 44,000 votes that separated Lamont from Stefanowski. So that was a a pretty close race. That was like 3% of the vote. And I I think that one of the biggest issues here um, that might put Stefanowski ahead of the game is actually back on police accountability and crime. Um, If he can reach those unaffiliated voters who um, don't feel safe, who have had their car stolen or those, you know, suburban moms, um, I I think that he could do very well if he focuses on that and actually focuses less on the economy. You know, I think that politics of fear was key in the election, the presidential election in 2020. And we saw how that worked for particular segments of voters. We've seen that locally within Connecticut in some town races. But now that every member of the General Assembly will be up for reelection in the fall, it will be interesting to see which issues people choose and how they say it's not just about the economy, but it's about all of these other things. Add in the other layer of redistricting in the state and how that will impact not just where people vote, but the options that they have. I think it's a really key year for election. And as you mentioned, now that Claritas has said, you know, I'm going to run for the U.S. Senate, it also introduces this option of rising star candidates who may have, you know, she, for example, in the past supported Former President Donald Trump talked about voting for him as the best candidate, but some of her policy positions don't align. And in particular, I'm thinking about her positions on uh, LGBTQ plus protections and rights, as well as reproductive care. That could appeal to some independents, which, as Jonathan said, is a major base in the state that could have implications for other races as well. Do you think Blumenthal should be concerned? Do you think that is going to be a competitive race for the U.S. Senate? I absolutely. Well, uh, absolutely. But, but, uh, okay. <laughs> all three at the same time. Yes, it is. <laughs> I love it. 
Uh, no, I absolutely think that it's going to be a, a competitive race. Um, you know, I think that she's going to have a lot of support. Um, you know, national money is going to come into this race. Um, and so even though she might not necessarily, her views might not necessarily align um, with the Republican um, National Committee stance on these things, that she is going to get support um, from the Republican National Committee. And that financial support is going to be crucial. Um, and, you know, she thinks it's her year. I mean, if she is able to tie um, Blumenthal to Biden, Biden only has a 40 percent approval rating here in Connecticut, which is considered a Democratic state. So um, if she's successful at that, I mean, of, of course, Blumenthal is very well known. Um, he, you know, he jokes that he will go to your garage door opening. But, uh, you know, I think that she could make this a competitive race. She could, and 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 I'm almost certain that they'll that they're they're going to do everything. Democrats are going to do everything to tie her to Trump. I think Trump will be play a very big role in this election. <laughs> uh, whichever way you look at it, the Democrats will try and make the Republicans either tie themselves to Trump or disown him. And whichever way they do that will be a problem going forward. So it's going to be very dicey. It's going to be interesting <laughs> to see how this plays out over the coming months. But that could also cause a backlash. We can't ignore how that worked out in Virginia anytime you bring up the Trump dynamics. So I, I have to be very careful of using that and how that's being pulled because, you know, this is life after Trump after all. I also want to add in one thing that's going to be, we can't ignore too, is the fact that, you know, I don't think... Clemens Claritas has got it in the bag right now when it comes to the nomination because we have other candidates on the Republican side of the aisle who are trying to run too. And that includes, you know, somebody like Flynn and, and Hyde. And well, I don't want to ignore also Levy too because, you know, she's been a big, you know, a donor and, and bundler for the party. And so she's not made it known in terms of whether she might run for the Senate and she might even consider running against Jim Himes down there um, for the House of Representatives seat. So there are a lot of these maneuverings we have to kind of see what takes place in the next month or two before the convention in May just internally within the party. Yeah, that's interesting. But it's also, it's also interesting because uh, I remember uh, a few years ago when, when uh, um, Blumenthal was running the first time, and we thought that would be the close race, and it didn't turn out that way. It was the Malloy race <laughs> that, that took days to decide. So um, we'll see. Uh, he, like Christine was saying, he'll go to your garage door opening. So <laughs> he's, uh, he's done a lot of legwork. I'll just say it's going to be a very interesting next 10 months for everyone who is a political analyst or political reporter in the state of Connecticut. So keep your cell phones ready. I anticipate the three of you will be getting lots of calls over the next few months. As our time together comes to a close, I want to raise one national issue that could have some implications for what happens here in Connecticut, and in particular, how voters see the future of the country and how Connecticut plays into that. And that is that we recently learned uh, Supreme Court Justice Stephen Breyer would be retiring from the court after 27 years on the bench. And that is generally not a thing that gets people that interested or gets people that uh, away of the impact. But now that President Biden has reaffirmed his campaign pledge to appoint a Black woman to that vacancy, you have people across the political aisle lining up in favor or in opposition to him making that statement. So I'll ask anyone who wants to weigh in here, how important is that nomination 
to representation in the U.S., but also the potential impact on down-ticket elections at the local or state level? Well, I'll put it this way. Um, the people who have been most disenchanted with with the with the Biden administration so far have have been uh, some of his biggest supporters in the black community and maybe this might galvanize that uh segment of the electorate that was disengaged before it's there's a, there's a possibility because it looks as if whoever he selects will face stick opposition from the Republicans. And so we'll see how that plays out. But uh, I have a feeling that um, this might have legs <laughs> in, the, in the upcoming election. Well, he had pledged in the first place when he campaigned uh, Joe Biden that he was going to be supportive of a, of a black female candidate. I mean, that's no secret. But I think that the Republicans, especially in the Senate, have to be very careful how they're going to go about challenging that. And we're seeing that being played out right now. So it, it's going to be interesting to see um, the confirmation hearings. But let's, let's admit it. Our Senate, and particularly Congress right now, has just been so high, you know, hyper-partisan that even agreeing on the day of the week is difficult. So I can't even imagine what a nomination is going to be like for a Supreme Court justice, no matter who it is. So it's problematic, but that's what we elected right now. Jonathan Wharton is Associate Professor of Political Science and Urban Affairs at Southern Connecticut State University. Ebong Adoma is Senior Reporter covering state politics for WSHU. And Christine Stewart is Editor and Owner of CT News Junkie and Reporter for NBC Connecticut. Thank you all for joining us this week. Thank you so much. Thanks. Thank you. To find links to work from our panelists, you can visit our website at ctpublic.org slash disrupted. Disrupted is produced by James Scoble-Wolf, Shekinah Collier, and Katie Tularski. And one last thing, our show isn't just on the radio. To listen to new episodes of Disrupted and binge our past episodes, subscribe to us wherever you get your podcast. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. Thanks for listening.